Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. In the wee small hours of October 1837, Londoner Mary Stevens was walking to her place of employment, a house in Lavender Hill where she worked as a servant. While passing through Clapham Common, a demonic-looking figure leapt out at her. Seizing her in a vice-like grip, he kissed her face frenetically, with claws described by Stevens as cold and clammy as those of a corpse. He tore at her clothes, fighting back like her life depended on it and screaming at the top of her lungs. Mary brought locals from nearby houses out onto the common. Startled, the demon took off at a superhuman speed. The following day, the attacker reappeared, this time near Battersea. Reports tell of a figure leaping from the shadows, directly into the path of a horse-drawn carriage. The coachman swerved, crashing and badly injuring himself. Again, locals came out of the houses, catching sight of the attacker henceforth known as spring Jack. Several men gave chase, but Jack ran off at a great speed towards a nine-foot-high brick wall. The pursuers were astonished as the cackling monster cleared the wall in a single bound. Public reports of Revenant went quiet for some time after this. Ghost sightings were not an entirely uncommon thing in London in the years preceding. Sightings of a Hammersmith ghost in 1803 Light spread like wildfire, and, well, these things just have a viral nature to them. Now this is not to say that these ghost cases that happened in London were anything terribly supernatural. There were a lot of cases of the time of people doing a thing called playing the ghost. You'd get out your best tablecloth or a white sheet, head out in the middle of the night and scare some poor soul half to death. Generally, these incidents were witnessed by a soul figure. And these were the ones that went viral. Springheel Jack, on the other hand, had two very public incidents where he was seen and pursued by dozens of people, and things remained quiet. This was the case, at least, until a public meeting held by Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan, on 9th of January 1838. At the meeting, Lord Mayor Cowan reported to onlookers he'd received a complaint, in writing, from a source he only referred to as a resident of Peckham. It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil, and moreover, that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. At one house the man rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse than brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. The affair has now been going on for some time, and strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their finger ends, but through interested motives, 
are induced to remain silent. Lord Mayor Cowan stated his doubts these assaults had even occurred, but citizen after citizen testified to reports of terrified, scarred or fondled servants. Dozens of assaulted women from Kensington to Hammersmith to Ealing between October 1837 and January 1838. Later that day, a reporter from the Times ran the story. This was subsequently picked up by newspapers from across the United Kingdom on January 10th, 1838. At this point, dozens of letters flooded into the Lord Mayor's office, recounting frightened women all spied upon, stalked or attacked by a shadowy, demonic figure. Several of these women bore deep wounds from the claws. A few claimed the victim had gone into a fit after. One report even claimed Springheel Jack had scared one victim to death. Cohen remained sceptical until a trusted friend came forth to report an assault on a servant in his employ. At this point, Lord Mayor Sir John Cohen ordered police across the city to make a top priority to locate the Revenant and bring him to justice. To borrow a phrase, it was a dark and stormy night on 20th February 1838 when a stranger rang the bell at the Allsop residence in the East London village of Old Ford. Very cautiously, 18-year-old Jane Allsop got up to see who had stopped by. While not terribly late at quarter to nine, it was a particularly horrendous night out there. Old Ford was an isolated village. The Allsops were not terribly used to visitors so late at night in even the best of weather. Staring through the glass, Jane could vaguely make out a tall, imposing, cloaked figure. What is the matter? she inquired. I am a policeman. For God's sake, bring me a light. We have caught Springheel Jack here in the lane. Jane scrambled to fetch a candle for the officer. Back in a matter of seconds, she handed the lit candle to the man. The stranger then dropped his cape, holding the candle under his face, so as to cast himself in the most terrifying light. Jane Allsop recoiled in horror of the stranger. Tall, hideously ugly, demonic with glowing red eyes. He wore a helmet, a tight-fitting shiny suit, and what appeared to be a lamp attached to his chest. As Jane scrambled backwards, the attacker leapt forwards, according to some media, exhaling a blue and white flame at her. Grabbing her by the neck and pinning her into a headlock, the assailant tore at Jane's face and clothes with his clawed hands. Mustering all of her strength, Jane broke free of the attacker and ran for a door. The assailant pulled her back by her hair, tearing tufts from her scalp. Jane's younger sister, Mary, ran out to save her, the froze in fear of the man's image. Her older sister, Sarah Hansen, then entered the affray, shoving the attacker off of Jane and then dragging her sisters to safety. She slammed the door in the attacker's face. Violently, frenetically, the assailant struck at their door, as the Allsop family wailed and screamed from within for help. Then in an instant, their attacker dispersed back into the dark, stormy night from whence he came. Eight days later, another young lady, 18-year-old Lucy Scales, was spooked by Springheel Jack on her way home from her brother's house. A man surprised her seconds after stepping out onto the street, Lucy let out a blood-curdling scream, then fainted. Now between these two incidents, a third attempted assault had happened, and this one left a clue. On a dark night in Turner Street, a stranger came a-knocking. 
Asking for the occupant, a Mr. Ashworth, by name, he was greeted by a servant boy. On this night, Springheel Jack was a little too trigger-happy. As the servant opened the door, Jack threw off his cloak, exposing his demonic figure. The boy screamed and slammed the door in his face. The press would allege the boy had noticed, for all his panic, something no other victim had. Letter W was embossed on his cloak. At this point in the tale, the diabolical Jack exits from London. In the following years, similar attacks occurred all over the south of Britain. Historian and guru of all things Fortiana, Mike Dash, notes sightings from Warwickshire in the north to Devon in the south, Yarmouth in the east to Herefordshire in the west. These attacks bore all the hallmarks. Surprise an unsuspecting traveller at night. Grass bottom with clawed hands, often scarring the victim. A daring escape familiar to watchers of parkour videos today, perhaps, but superhuman or supernatural in their age. The attacker would leap over hedges, walls, even horse-drawn carriages. The press would often portray the attacker as a tall, diabolical figure with piercing red eyes. He briefly reappeared in London in 1872 to the distress of the Londoners. Then again in 1877. The latter seems an odd choice of target for Springheel Jack. The original Jack was really a sex pest, mostly assaulting lone women. This Jack had to pick the worst property in all of London to terrorise. An Aldershot Surrey is an army barracks. Guarded around the clock by men with guns, the barracks held as many as 10,000 men at a time. In the spring of 1877, a tall, diabolical man who leapt buildings in a single bound began sneaking up on lone sentries in the dead of night. Perched atop their sentry boxes, he would reach down and grab him by the face. Some guards broke down in a mad panic. A few managed to regain their senses and fire off a volley or two in his direction as he bounded away. He returned in the autumn of 1877 to pull the same prank on a number of occasions, suspiciously only after the order was given not to fire on the demon. Later in 1877, he drew more gunfire, this time from the locals of Newport as he leapt from rooftop to rooftop. Locals claimed they hit him, but Springheel Jack just shrugged it off and kept moving. He then disappears again, until his final reign of terror in 1904, this time all the way up north in Liverpool. After several nighttime attacks, he was seen one final time, in broad daylight, bounding through the streets. Legend has it he came to a building, leapt the 25 feet to its roof, then bounded away, never to be seen again. So how do we make sense of this tale? First, I feel it's safe to say the devil did not come to London. And what is clear from the earliest of attacks, a very corporeal, sexual predator was likely responsible. By 1877, when the Aldershock Barracks incident occurred, the Springheel Jack character had taken on a purely mischievous dimension. By 1904, Springheel Jack had become a superhero in the minds of the public whose ability to scale obstacles had expanded to clearing two-story buildings in a bound. In his development, Springheel Jack had become a boogeyman, a scary tale you tell your children, to scare them into being home by curfew. And he'd also become a meme, in the sense evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins first used the term, an idea which replicated in a viral manner. 
Memes often take on many forms, but the stronger forms replicate, while the weaker fall away. Once a meme is birthed, it takes on a life outside of its creator. And memes can just lay dormant for long periods where they hide in cellars, trunks and bookshelves. A Springheel Jack type would have the strangest of re-emergences in Czechoslovakia in the years 1939 to 1945. During World War II, a folktale of a Perak, a spring man of Prague, appeared. A tall, diabolical folk hero who could jump buildings in a single bound and who harassed the occupying Nazis in the city. I'll come back to the reality of Springheel Jack in a second. Probably worthwhile just mentioning quickly one more digression. After the Aldershot Barrack incidents, in 1878, Springheel Jack was immortalized in print, getting his own penny dreadful. Springheel Jack, the Terror of London. The series of tales written by George Augustus Sala put the figure of Springheel Jack in an unusual position, probably not to be said of any other person mentioned in tales of history and imagination anyway. Alongside Hugo Hercules in 1902, John Carter of Mars in 1911, the Grey Seal in 1914, Zorro 1919, The Shadow 1930, The Green Hornet and Cato 1931, Doc Savage 1933, Mandrake the Magician in 35, Doctor Occult 1935, The Clock 1936, and The Phantom 1936. Springheel Jack had become a noted antecedent to Siegel and Schuster's Superman. Now just returning quickly to the Alsop family on 20th February 1838, we do have a viable suspect, a man who was brought in but was let go because he could not have carried on the other attacks. He was identified leaving the crime scene by an acquaintance, and when caught still had Jane Alsop's candle in his possession. The man in question was a carpenter named Thomas Milbank. He avoided prosecution on two grounds. First, he had ironclad alibis for all the other attacks. And second, he was blackout drunk on the night of the Alsop attack. The Alsop family claimed, wrongly, I believe, their attacker was stone-cold sober. Milbank walked without a single charge. Now, another man is believed to have been Springheel Jack on several other occasions. A young nobleman known in society as the Mad Marquis, Henry de la Poa Beresford, the third Marquis of Waterford. On 6th April 1837, the young Marquis, recently expelled from Oxford University for conduct unbecoming a gentleman, arrived in Melton Mowbray's Fourpend Tollgate. He was heavily intoxicated and surrounded by an entourage of fellow young inebriates. When asked to pay the toll, the belligerent Marquis attacked the tollkeeper. The bridge was recently painted, and tins of red paint and brushes were still left nearby. Waterford's entourage pinned the tollkeeper down, while the Marquis painted him. A constable stepped in, only to be beaten, held down, and painted also. The drunken entourage rioted throughout the town, painting doors and walls, destroying flower pots and business signs as they went. They vandalised the post office, and tried to upturn a caravan. Several officers tried to stop the gang, but were, also, beaten and painted for their trouble. A constable finally collared one of the louts, Edward Reynard, and threw him in a jail cell. 
The next day, a hungover Marquis bailed Reynard, paying many times the cost at the toll bridge to release his pal. They were all charged with several counts of common assault, paying £100 apiece. This incident gave rise to the term Paint the Town Red to describe a riotous night out on the town. Not long after this, the Marquis and his entourage caused an international incident in Norway. Waterford was harassing a local woman and was knocked unconscious by a local with a morning star. He soon returned to London, just before spring Jack's first appearance. He remained in London till 1842, regularly making the news in his own name, in several drunken, churlish incidents. In 1842, the Marquis married the socialite Louisa Stewart and moved to Carrigmore House, Ireland. Whether he was a reformed man via marriage and behaved himself, well, that's debatable, but he avoided further charges and scandals until his death in 1859. The Mad Marquis died of a broken neck after being thrown by a horse. The Marquis of Waterford was an athlete and, at least until his last ride, an excellent horseman. His garments bore his family crest, a shield with a giant W on them. His entourage included a skilled engineer who could have made a pair of spring-heeled shoes. High society long suspected him of being spring-heeled Jack, and if the slew of attacks were revenged for perceived slights at Moulton Mowbray, the Norwegian incident, and just against women in general as he appeared to be a bit of a misogynist. Though hardly conclusive, Henry Beresford, the third Marquis of Waterford, remains the prime suspect in all his early spring-heeled Jack assaults. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.